podcast on Germany. My name is Jacob, and this is episode 18. Why, Gaul? Hey, guys. Welcome back. I need to take a week off to format for the next set of episodes. And these episodes are going to cover from Julius Caesar's campaign into Gaul to the establishment of the Rhine as the border for the Roman Empire. By the end of these episodes, Germany and Rome will be full-time neighbors, and they'll remain on the Rhine and Danube borders from about 16 AD to 74 AD. These episodes will explore how Germany and Rome went from having next to no contact to being next-door neighbors, and Germany almost being turned into a Roman province. Now, we will be mainly relying on Roman sources, so I need to give you a big warning. Okay? These sources are not to be trusted for 100% accuracy. Romans aren't writing for our benefit. They aren't writing for accuracy. A lot of times they're writing to aid themselves in one way or another. And there's also no way that they could give us the full story anyway because they can only tell us what the empire sees. They can't tell us what's happening in Germania itself. Take Julius Caesar. He is a master writer. I love reading his campaign in Gaul. I love reading it. However, you have to be careful with it. He's such a good writer that you could take him for his word. But the story that he writes, it shows him in a far better light than, say, his enemies in the Senate. Or, say, how Ambiorix would describe him. You see, Caesar knew that the story that he was writing would be read by others. He wanted to make sure everyone knew that Caesar was the best. Caesar did an awesome job. Now let's take Tacitus. He writes a book on Germany. He tells us about the tribes. He tells us about their way of life, how their culture works. He goes into a lot of detail. Problem is, is that he wrote this as a counter to Rome. He wasn't really trying to accurately reflect the German tribes. He was trying to set up a opposite to Rome to show what Rome has lost. So he's painting these Germans in a picture of what we call a noble barbarian or noble savage because he's upset with the excess of Roman life. Unfortunately, you really have to take his work very carefully. You can't trust a lot of what he's saying because of what he's trying to do. So our written sources are all going to be from the Roman point of view. They have their own agendas. And at best, they can only tell us what's happening from their side. They can't tell us what's going on across the Rhine or the Danube. They can't tell us what the leaders of these German tribes were thinking or planning. We don't have that information. And sadly, this is not really going to go away until after the fall of the Roman Empire. German tribes do not have a written record. Instead, we have to rely on the Romans. Now, we can use archaeology to fill in some of the blanks, but overall, the history of the Germans during the Roman Age will be focused mainly on military excursions and tribal invasions along the borders 
of the Roman Empire. But we're not there yet. I just wanted to lay down what the sources are like for us in this upcoming stage of the podcast and all the way through till the end of the Roman Empire. For these two, for Rome and Germany, there is no relationship. There are no German tribes really dealing with the Romans and vice versa. There is some interaction, probably some conflict between Roman allied tribes and the Germans to the north of the Alps. But the Romans are not dealing with the Germans again for quite a while. So why is there this gap between the Sembrae and the eventual German and Roman confrontation? Well, for Rome, they go through several internal struggles after the Sembrae have collapsed. You remember Marius? Well, Marius had been made consul so many times that he really wasn't wanting to give that up. And so eventually it leads to him fighting against his fellow general, Lucius Sola, and it will mark a turning point in Roman history. Because between these two, Roman troops will fight each other based on their loyalty to their generals. And this changes everything. The Roman armies now serve the generals. They don't serve the Senate. And when those generals want more power, well, now they have the army to back them up. Not only is there this civil war going on between Marius' supporters and Sola's supporters, but there is a social war in which Rome goes to war against their Italian allies. There's Sola's dictatorship, in which he eliminates all those that had supported Marius. There's Spartacus' rebellion. And there's a pirate crisis in the Mediterranean itself, which will threaten to cut off Rome from its territories, such as Spain. All of these are internal issues that Rome has to deal with. They have to pin these down. They can't afford to go looking for a fight up north. While they're not busy dealing with these internal issues, they are also expanding out eastwards. Rome will expand into modern-day Turkey, crushing Pontus, the local kingdom in Turkey. And there they are going to gain a lot of wealth and access to the Middle East. So needless to say, for Rome, they're just way too busy to deal with a possible Germanic threat. Instead, they need to deal with the actual threats. They have threats at home, and of course the threats in Turkey. What about Germany? Why don't we see another invasion from a Germanic tribe? Well, it's not as detailed. We don't have much information to go off. But we can take from bits and pieces and try to form a general picture of what's going on in Germany at the time. Environmental or tribal warfare was forcing tribes to migrate. This is why the Cimbri eventually made it to Rome, made it to threaten the Republic. Tribes are being consolidated, or they're combining with others to form new identities. Some are being eliminated completely, being lost to us, thanks to this chaos. Let's say that the disaster 
that causes all this. It, let's say it starts on the coastline. The Romans say that the Sembri and others left the coastline because of flooding. So let's assume it's that. The coasts have shrunk thanks to flooding. There's not enough land in order to set up farms. And so these large tribes, they can't stay in their land anymore. So the movements from this chaotic time are going to start from the coastline. Large tribes to small local villages with no alliances to others, all of them are going to have to move because of this. Now, if the tribe is smaller, or if there's only one or two villages that have gained together to make this move, well, they're going to have a harder time of finding a home because they don't have the manpower to fight with their new neighbors to make sure that they don't fall into slavery. So, in order not to have to deal with a larger tribe beating you up, you have to combine. The small villages that have been isolated for so long, they have to unite. They have to do something. But here's the issue. You see, the larger your tribe gets, the more land you need. And so, as you can guess, this is going to snowball out of control. Tribes along the coastline are going to be forced to move on. Once they move on, they either conquer the new territory, are defeated and wiped out, or are defeated and have to keep moving on. Those villages and tribes that were located in the areas that were conquered by the villages and tribes on the coastline, now they have to find a new home. And slowly, this avalanche just spreads through Germany. Eventually, some of these tribes are going to make it to Gaul. They're going to make it to northern Italy. This is why the Simbri showed up, because they could not find a home in Germania. They could not defeat any of the tribes there to set up shop. And so instead, they had to keep moving south, and they eventually ran into the Gauls and then Rome. But no other tribe from the German territories does this again. They don't do this until Julius Caesar is set up shop. Why aren't they going into northern Italy? Well, it's believed that by the time the Cimbri are crushed, things are starting to settle down just a little bit in Germania. The tribes are still having to move occasionally, but nothing as large as the Cimbri before. Instead, What seems to happen is that the Germans, having run into the Gauls, see the wealth, see the amazing land that they own, and they start to covet it. And so after this crisis period has kind of settled, the Germans start turning towards the Gauls. They start trying to take their territory. Originally, Gallic tribes owned territory on the east side of the Rhine. However, over time, especially by Caesar's time, the Gauls are kicked out of that territory. They are pushed to the west of the Rhine. And so Germany becomes everything east of the Rhine. So we know why they're going into Gaul. There's the wealth of the land. There's plenty of farmable territory. Germany is poor. There's no doubt about that. Germany is poor. And the lands are probably still having to recover after this migration period where tribes had been moving around devastating the land. 
we know that the Gauls, who were on the east side of the Rhine, had plenty of farmable land. And so they were easy targets for the Germans. They wanted that land, so they were going to go for it. And luckily enough for the Germans, the Gauls never really unite. In fact, they'll fight each other and the Germans. So luckily enough for the Germans, a united Gaul never happens. And so the Gauls are forced across the Rhine. And then the Germans start pushing into Gaul itself. We can see signs of German victories through archaeology. We can find old villages that belong to the Gauls and see how they were changed. How German influence slowly creeps in or forces itself. We can find weapons from this time period in warrior burial sites all the way up north in Denmark. A lot of fighting is going on between these two groups. And it seems like the Gauls are losing a lot more often than winning. Now we don't know anything about the battles. All that is lost to history. But it's clear that by the time Caesar starts his campaign in Gaul, the German tribes control the east side of the Rhine and also parts of the west. Now, by the time Julius Caesar invades Gaul, we know of two large German tribes that will have established themselves in the area. One was the Belgae. This had been a Germanic tribe that had crossed the Rhine and then sort of adopted parts of the Gallic culture for themselves. But they had established themselves quite well in modern-day Belgium. The other was the Swabi who will arrive later on in the 1st century BC, but will establish themselves in modern-day Alsace under the extremely successful Ariovistus. We do have signs that the German expansion wasn't just against the Gauls and the West. As the tribe the Boii, located near the Danube River, was thrown back into the Dacians because German tribes had forced them out. This happens in the 1st century BC, and we'll see the Boii being crushed by the Dacians. The tribe that Rome claims to have done this was the Marcomanni, who will be a thorn in Rome's side for years to come. But despite the Marcomanni moving closer to the Romans in the east, it's in the west that the clash between Germany and Rome happens. Gaul is the prize, and the Germans seem to be on their way to claiming it, as not only have they taken over the lands east of the Rhine from the Gauls, but two tribes, as mentioned before, have established themselves in Gaul by the time Rome is getting involved. Other tribes are going to be used as mercenaries by the Gauls themselves, or they're going to be crossing the Rhine and raiding to take loot back home. Life was really good for these German tribes, but for the Gauls, well, it's horrible. They're being attacked. Their villages are being plundered, if not destroyed completely. Their crops are being conquered by the Germans to be used by their own people. But it's about to get worse, because finally, Rome is getting involved. Okay, so why does Rome get interested in Gaul. Remember, for Rome itself, 
They were so busy dealing with internal issues and expanding out east that they never really bothered with the north. So why does that change? Well, it comes down to just one man, Julius Caesar. Why does Caesar get interested? Well, for that, we need some background on him. Julius Caesar, as mentioned earlier in the podcast, was related to Gaius Marius. He used this to gain political support, and he rapidly climbed the political ladder, eventually becoming consul in 59 BC. As consul, he helped create the triumvirate with the general Donatius Pompeius Magnus and the affluent Marcus Crassus. This alliance gave Caesar a lot of power, but it was also an extremely uneasy alliance, as each member was suspicious of the other, and two of them would quickly take advantage of any noticeable weaknesses of a third. Now for Caesar, this weakness was his lack of victories and loyal troops. He had no military support. He needed victories so he could build legions loyal to him, so he could get loot, so he could gain wealth. And this would allow him to be on the same level as the extremely successful general Pompey, who is, of course, the second member of the triumvirate. In the 50s, he is governor of Gaul, or Roman province of Gaul. As governor of this territory, his best hope of getting military victories was a war against the Gallic tribes nearby. However, he needed an excuse. There was no way he could just invade Gaul. That would cause him some severe political headaches if he did that. And he would overstep his boundaries and risk upsetting the other two members of the triumvirate. So he had to wait for an opportunity. And he finally got it, thanks to a tribe called the Helvetii. The Helvetii is a Gallic tribe originally from the east of the Rhine. They were kicked out by the Germans, and they moved to the Western Alps. Now this tribe was praised by Caesar for their ability to fight because of their constant warfare against Germans. This tribe moved again with the plans of taking over Gaul, or at least boasting that they could take over Gaul, using their skills in order to conquer the new land. They were tired of the constant fighting with the Germans, and they were tired of where they were living. They wanted somewhere that had better land, somewhere where they could grow crops, and where they could get rich. Now, to get into Gaul, they had to decide on two possible routes. One was to cross the Rhone near Geneva. This had been part of the Roman province under Julius Caesar's control. The second route required the Havelti to go in between the Jura range of the Alps and the Rhone River into Sequani lands, which was heavily settled by local German tribes. And between the two, they decided to take the first route. Rather than risk dealing with a narrow path, that was occupied by German tribes. For Caesar, 
this would be a blessing because it finally gives them the excuse to be involved in Gaul. And over the next 10 years, he will establish that the Romans are going to rule Gaul. Alright, so that's going to do it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Please join in next week as we discuss how Julius Caesar fights his first German foe by the name of Ariovistus. And these two will be fighting for control of Eastern Gaul. For all my fans out there who are spreading word about the podcast, thank you so much. You guys have done a wonderful job. Please keep doing it. And I hope you guys have a great week. See you next Tuesday.